Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kettley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 10 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. They Check that out. They said we wouldn't make it, but they're wrong. <laughs> 10 episodes. That's about nine more than I ever thought we were going to <laughs> make it through. That's that's double digits, man. That's uh, that's two figures, sort of like my income. <laughs> so anyway, today on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, we'll be talking to Tom Rogers, author of Insultingly Stupid Movie Physics. You know, I was just uh, in a bookstore last year um, in Santa Monica. And I just randomly came across this book, and I thought it looked cool. So I picked it up and read it, and I just thought it was great. And it just kind of talks about all the most popular movies and what's wrong with the science in them. And it has uh, equations and things that you can figure out if you're interested. But they're all safely enclosed in boxes. So if you don't care, you can just skip right over them. Mm -hmm. So I read it, and I thought it was really good. And, you know, my dad teaches physics at Stanford. So I was curious what he would think. So I, I, I showed it to him. And he read it, and he really liked it. He actually proposed uh, teaching a class, sort of an undergraduate class for non-majors, using that as the textbook. And uh, I guess they never that that never went anywhere. But it's a good indication of you know how good he thought the book was. So uh, you know if you're interested in you know a fun way to learn some science that's relevant to science fiction, I definitely recommend checking that out. Yeah, I would have I would have loved uh, I would have loved it if uh, there was a physics class in, uh, in high school or or even college. I mean, I, I never took a physics class in college, but I did take one in high school, and I would have certainly loved it if uh, used a textbook something like that because whatever textbook they used, man, oh my <laughs> god, it was like the most boring class ever, and like what couldn't have put me off science more. And I mean, I was totally interested in it going into the class. I was excited. I was excited, but man, I, I couldn't have disliked that class more. So. So physics teachers of America take note, and around, around and around the world. So yeah, so so today we'll be talking to Tom Rogers, uh, the author of the book, and uh, hearing about some of the more fun stuff that he covers in the book. Uh, and then stick around after the interview, where John and I will be talking about how much science should there be in science fiction. All right, so let's get Tom on the phone. Hello. Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, yes. Uh, this is Tom Rogers. Uh, so first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, where'd you grow up and what's your educational slash professional background? Right. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. My educational background uh, is in uh, mechanical engineering. Graduated from Arizona State University uh, oh, back in uh, 1974 went to work in industry, worked as an engineer for a whole lot of years, and uh, eventually uh, decided that uh, I wanted to become a teacher. So that led me uh, into uh, teaching physics in high school. And uh, currently I uh, teach at uh, Southside High School in Greenville, South Carolina, teach uh, things like calculus-based uh, AP physics. Okay, so uh, you, you seem to watch a lot of science fiction movies. Uh, would you consider yourself a science fiction fan? And uh, did science fiction play a role in getting you interested in science? Well, I, I, I definitely think I uh, would consider myself a uh, science fiction movie fan. Uh, did it really play a role in getting me into science? I don't know. I guess I was more or less just fascinated with designing things and also understanding things. 
The whole science thing just completely fascinated me from the time I was a child. And, of course, things like astronomy and uh, the prospects of space travel, uh, they were a real big thing when I was growing up. Okay, so uh, you started up a website to critique the science mistakes in movies. Uh, what was the impetus for that, and was there any particular movie that made you say, all right, that's the last straw, I'm starting a website? Well, of course, part of the reason that I started the website is that when I got into teaching, I wanted my students to be thinking about physics someplace other than just in the classroom. And uh, movies were a natural area to progress into because uh, Hollywood has been so cooperative on uh, having all kinds of uh, goofy physics scenes that uh, we can analyze. So that, that was a, a big factor. And yes, indeed, there were times when I would see something uh, on a movie that I would just shake my head and just go, oh my gosh, that just can't possibly happen. And to me personally, it's so distracting that I wanted to say something about it. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do it in a little bit of a, uh, with a little bit of humor and, and style and so on. And so uh, that's what's uh, evolved into my website. Can you think of what a few of the movies were that, that bothered you that led to you starting the website? I don't know that there was a single movie that was the last straw. One of the ones that bothered me quite a bit was uh, the situation where you would see uh, a bullet impact and you'd see this great big bright flash of light. Well, the only way that's going to happen is if you're using uh, incendiary bullets, and uh, typically the only people that use incendiary bullets are uh, military guys uh, shooting them out of big machine guns. I'd see cars that would explode for no good reason at all. One of my favorites, a car fell out of an uh, aircraft, and the car explodes and bursts into flames just before it hits the ground. Things like that are, are really distracting. The idea that you can take a handgun and shoot the gas tank on a car and have it go off like a bomb. When, when did you first start to realize, sort of growing up, that there was this discontinuity between the movie reality and, and our reality? Is that something that studying in school helped you learn, or did you, did you have uh, personal experience with firearms, or, or what was it? Well, of course, I, I mentioned I grew up in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. At the time I was growing up, uh, it was kind of almost like cowboy country. Uh, I haven't lived in uh, Phoenix for quite a few years, but, uh, for instance, we used to get rodeo day off uh, <laughs> school. So uh, uh, as a young person, uh, we'd do things like go out on the desert and shoot guns. And so, uh, yes, uh, I have seen... Uh, what firearms can do and what they can't. So did you ever shoot a car gas <clears throat> with a gun and it just nothing happened and you were really disappointed? No, nev never tried that, but uh, I'm pretty confident that you could shoot a car in the gas tank and you're not going to get a whole lot out of it unless you use a, uh incendiary bullet. I have seen that done. I have seen incendiary bullets fired into something like a bale of hay, and uh, sure enough, it will set it on fire. What, what was the situation when you saw people firing incendiary bullets into hay? And back when I was a young person growing up in Arizona, you could get lots of military surplus stuff, so it wasn't like it was a rarity. Uh, Mythbusters backs you up, by the way. They, uh, they, you know, they they tried to set a gas tank on fire by shooting it with regular bullets, and it didn't work. Yeah, um, well, there's really good theoretical reason why it wouldn't. Uh, for one thing, if there's very much gas inside the tank, the mixture will be too rich. Turns out, gasoline has a very narrow uh, range of flammability, 
What we tested in the uh, book were uh, cigarettes. We tried it over 300 times with cigarettes, <laughs> and the book talks a lot about theoretical reasons for why it doesn't work, but we never once got it to work. We even built a smoking machine uh, and smoked cigarettes over an open uh, pan full of gasoline and tried moving them around at different levels and the whole thing. We could never get it to ignite. But uh, I finally wrote some stunt guys in Hollywood and asked them, you know, uh, why does this work in movies? And uh, basically they all wrote back and said pretty much the same thing. It works in movies because there's a technician standing off to the side and he pushes a uh, button and causes an electronic spark next to the gasoline. So people should feel free to just smoke while they're filling up their cars? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't recommend that. And certainly you wouldn't want to light a cigarette because the match will indeed trigger a flammable mixture. When I was in college, um, I, I, I was always disappointed that we could never get our bonfires looking the way they do in movies. And then I actually saw them filming a, a movie and they had about 12 propane tanks feeding <laughs> their bonfire. Yeah, uh, fires always burn a lot cleaner in movies than they do in actual life. I'd worked in the chemical industry for a period of time and have actually been to firefighting school. And uh, I can say from personal experience that if you go inside a burning building, you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's kind of like the underwater shots. Anybody that's a, a scuba diver knows that your average uh, pond in a swamp, you go under the water and you can't see anything. They uh, did that in one of the Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, had guys swimming around in a pond that was in the middle of a swamp, and, and yet they could see underwater. Okay, so say there was a giant asteroid the size of Texas heading for Earth. Uh, all we'd have to do is blow it up with a nuclear bomb, and then the problem would be, would be solved, right? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, the whole problem with nuclear bombs is uh, they're you know terrifying and horrifying in terms of dropping them on cities and things like that. But compared to a uh, large-sized uh, asteroid, a nuclear bomb is a firecracker. Mm. It just does not have enough energy to uh, do much of anything, uh, especially not to something the size of a Texas-sized asteroid. They did, did this in Armageddon, and now think about this. Texas is a really, really big place. Could you really split the entire state of Texas in half with a single nuclear bomb? You know, when you put it in that perspective, it sounds a little bit silly. Uh, so uh, in the movies, blowing up aliens always looks like so much fun, but you claim it's actually a bit more complicated than that. What are some of the problems involved with blowing up alien spaceships? In Independence Day, uh, of course, they had these big saucer things that were supposed to be like on the order of 15 miles in uh, diameter, if you were to blow one of those things up, it has so much gravitational potential energy in it that even following a relatively short distance, like say a mile, those things, they would have to weigh hundreds of thousands of tons. And as the thing came down, it would be like a giant piston, which the closer it got to the ground, the higher the airflow would be out the sides of the piston to the extent that it would eventually uh, reach uh, air velocities that would be similar to what you would get in a nuclear bomb. But to make matters worse, uh, it would probably compress the air a good deal. 
heat up all the surroundings, and so uh, you'd get a big blast of very hot air coming out from underneath it. It would be like a fairly good-sized nuclear bomb going off. But then you have to figure a 15-mile diameter saucer that's traveled from afar to get to Earth, it's got to have some fuel in it. (laughs) It's got to have something in it, probably something like antimatter. And so if it ruptures the antimatter tank, well, uh, then gablooey, there goes uh, a real nuclear bomb. In the book, you also talk about some of the problems with blowing up a spaceship in space. Right. Well, the the problem there is a lot of the, the battle scenes in space are sort of scripted off of uh, World War II uh, aircraft-type uh, battles. Uh, or naval battles of different kinds. The nice thing about a World War II battle, if you shot down an aircraft, the gravitational forces pull it into the water and everything is okay. In outer space, if you blow up the incoming aircraft, the parts still keep coming straight towards you. Hmm. Uh, So in the movie uh, The Matrix Revolutions, uh, the humans in Zion use a teenager with a wheelbarrow to keep their giant robot suit supplied with ammo. Does this strike you as a reasonably well-thought-out plan? It's particularly hilarious seeing a guy with a wheelbarrow supplying a uh, rapid-fire 30-millimeter cannon with ammunition. If you run a few calculations on it, uh, you figure out real quickly that a fairly small burst out of the cannon is going to burn up hundreds of rounds of ammunition and you're practically going to have to have a truck uh, carrying the ammunition out to the weapon. Okay, uh, you know, once when I was a kid I saw this movie where radioactivity created terrifying ants the size of tigers, and ever since then I've suffered from constant nightmares that that might actually happen. Do you get those nightmares too? Well, I remember the movie very clearly, and yeah, uh, the first time I saw it was pretty scary too. But uh, the good news is there aren't going to be any giant ants anytime soon. And the reason why is that uh, things just don't scale up the way they do in movies. What happens is the mass or weight of the creature increases way faster than the uh, strength of the uh, creature's legs. And so if you scaled up an ant so that it was 12 feet long, it would probably collapse under its own weight. Its legs would probably buckle and it would just sit there on the ground sort of moving around doing not much of anything. See, you know, Spider-Man got bitten by a radioactive spider, and a spider can lift something like 500 times its own weight, so therefore that made Spider-Man strong enough to lift 500 times his weight. Spiders are so strong because of their small size, and that's not because of any special spiderness. Okay, so uh, you've identified the movie The Core as the absolute worst movie of all time when it comes to science. Uh, What makes it so bad? The Core is one of those movies that's so bad that it's actually good. Uh, (laughs) It it could almost be parody. It has so many goofy things in it, and, and it's not just like one or two big things that reach out and grab you. It's continuous. It's one right after another. And, uh, you know, just when you think it's over, there's another thing that comes. (laughs) One of the most hilarious scenes is when the uh, microwave radiation that comes from the sun uh, causes the Golden Gate Bridge to collapse. 
And, you know, if you look into this a little bit, yes, we do get some microwave radiation from the sun, but supposedly the reason why it's so intense is the magnetic field of Earth has been disrupted. Well, the magnetic field of Earth doesn't stop a single bit of hmm. microwave radiation that comes from the sun. Okay, so you mentioned Blade Runner in 2001 as movies with reasonably good science. Uh, what is it that these movies do right? There, there are some flaws in Blade Runner. One of the standard uh, things that you see in a lot of futuristic movies are the levitating cars. Well, we've been predicting levitating cars uh, ever since I was a kid that, you know, uh, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, everybody will fly to work in their levitating car. And uh, so far, it doesn't look like there's anything on the horizon that's going to do that sort of thing. But overall, they did a pretty decent job of it, and they told a really cool story. There are some aspects of 2001 that are almost sort of incomprehensible. In fact, you have to read the book to even begin to understand some of the stuff in it. But what they did uh, right, they did really right. For instance, the uh, space station in it is rotating, and you can actually produce something that uh, would feel a whole lot like uh, artificial gravity. It, it really isn't. It's caused from centripetal force. But if you have a big enough space station and you rotate it at, at the right rate, uh, you can actually produce something that would feel a lot like uh, normal Earth gravity. And that's pretty much what they did. My students and, and I in class before have done a, a lot of detailed work on making measurements of the things in the movie. And it comes out uh, that they had the right rate of rotation and they had the right size uh, to do this kind of thing. One other thing that I think is really worth mentioning is that there was no sound in, in space and it made it seem so cold and so eerie and remote and lonely. You talk, I think, about in, how in Blade Runner the replicants are stronger than human beings, but they can't rip iron doors apart with their bare hands and things like that. Right. They have limitations. And this is one of the things that typically in Hollywood, you know, somebody will have like a uh, cybernetic arm or a uh, mechanical arm, and they'll be able to tear through walls and all kinds of stuff. Well, first of all, uh, if you look at all at, at any artificial arms and things like this, they're relatively delicate. But, okay, let's assume somehow or another they can make an artificial arm that's uh, super robust and has a nuclear power source in it or something like that. You still got to attach it to a human being. And uh, the place where you attach it isn't going to be able to take the stresses from the arms slamming into a wall. And uh, people that have done some martial arts and things like that, when you punch the punching bag, it hurts. You know, you feel it all the way back into your shoulder. Well, if you were to slam your fist through a wall, <laughs> your shoulder has to be able to handle the stress. And how about like characters leaping extraordinarily high, too? Yeah, well, again, uh, you have all kinds of problems with it. I mean, typically you'll have uh, like a, a robotic character or a cyborg or something that can smash through a wall or tear open a metal door or that kind of thing. 
and has a metal skeleton and so on that supposedly enables all of this. And then suddenly they can leap up to the top of the two-story building or, or do a bunch of backflips. It, uh, it doesn't make sense from a weight-to-mass ratio. And say if a character leaps 100 feet in the air, doesn't an equal amount of energy have to be directed back into the ground? Yes, that's correct. So if you had things like the Incredible Hulk jumping off of the sidewalk and traveling half a mile or a mile in a single leap... Uh, when he would probably have to weigh uh, on the order of a 1,000 or more pounds at least, uh, it would be breaking the sidewalk when he leaped, not just when he landed, but when he leaped. Are there any other science fiction movies you can think of that actually have some good science in them? Gattaca had some interesting things in it. Even uh, Avatar, which was uh, recently came out, had some fairly interesting kinds of things in it. They didn't so much explain in the movie itself how they got from Earth to uh, Pandora, but in press releases and so on uh, that they've apparently given out, supposedly the theory is that they, in their big spacecraft, it's operating off of a combination of fusion and uh, antimatter. And, okay, that's pretty far-fetched. <laughs> Nobody even has anything close to a technology that could do that kind of thing. But if you were going to guess at how somebody could travel from Earth to uh, Pandora, if Pandora existed, that's probably about the only thing that would come to mind if you were going to try to get there in six years. And also the fact that they said that it's going to take six years uh, recognizes the fact that you're just not going to, you know, jump in the old space Toyota and <laughs> haul off to Pandora for the weekend. So you talked about Avatar, but uh, there's been a couple other uh, big science fiction movies out recently. Uh, there's J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot, um, District 9, and Moon. Uh, what do you think of the science in those movies? The, the Star Trek movie is the one that I've spent the most time thinking about <laughs> and so on. I felt real enthusiastic about the way they portrayed the characters and all. They couldn't have hit it uh, spot on anymore to be consistent with the uh, the old Star Trek series, and uh, i got to admit, I'm something of a Trekkie at heart. There were a lot of things in it that were really seemed pretty silly. The idea that you could pull this syringe full of red matter, whatever that <laughs> is, and, you know, fire it into the center of a planet. Well, you know, why bother to dig this big tunnel into the center of the planet? Why not just stick it on the surface and let it eat its way to the center? Uh, surely it would destroy the planet to, in both situations. But the idea that that would actually happen is uh, incredibly far-fetched. Of course, we have no idea what red matter is supposed to be, um, but small black holes evaporate. This is one of the reasons why we don't have to worry about CERN creating a small black hole. It's because it's going to uh, evaporate about as fast as it's produced. The real black holes to be uh, really uh, disastrously dangerous, they have to do things like have several billion times the mass of the sun in them. And then, yes, if you had a black hole with that kind of mass in it, it could eat planets like popcorn. But a little bit of something or another coming out of a syringe just doesn't seem like it's going to have enough mass to really do much of anything. It was 
kind of funny, too, the way that they depicted this gigantic alien spacecraft hovering over San Francisco, drilling the hole. You have to ask yourself, well, is this in orbit, or is there some other mechanism at work here? Because you're not going to get a geostationary orbit over San Francisco. It's the wrong location for it. Have you gotten any feedback from fans or, or movie makers or anything on your website or your book? The the majority tends to be uh, positive in nature. There's probably one uh, or two percent out there who seem to almost take movies as a religious experience <laughs> or something. They get really cranky with me if I say anything that is derogatory about their favorite movie. And uh, once in a while, uh, I'll get somebody that you kind of wonder if they're off of med- medication. Uh, they'll get really carried away with something. What's like one of the craziest things you've heard from, from somebody? Oh, well, I, I had a guy one time that emailed me and said somebody should punch me in the nose or something like it was something of that sort. And, of course, there's the usual comment with this kind of a letter is get a life and you know, so on and so forth. And anyway, I wrote back and I said, well, you know, if you'd like to meet me and punch me in the nose, it won't be the first time it's ever happened. So I'll be glad to meet you someplace. And of course, then he wrote back and said, oh, no, no, he didn't mean that at all. And, you know, so on and so forth. So I don't know. I never met him. Did you tell him you're packing uh, incendiary ammunition? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, he might have figured that out. (laughs) Do you uh, have any ideas about things that could be done to get better science in movies? Some of the things that I see that I think are are positive in nature, uh, movies like Band of Brothers, uh, Saving Private Ryan, some of the war picture type movies, at least lately, have stepped it up in the direction of having greater realism. And I don't know, there's just something really scary about hearing that bullet sound humming over your head or that thunk of a bullet against something uh, right beside you and so on that, that makes it just really eerie and, and uh, scary, makes you feel like you're on the beach on D-Day. Or I've, I've seen in a number of places where they've actually depicted that things like machine guns and so on make a whole lot of noise. You know, they've had characters that if a machine gun is fired near their head, they can't hear anything for a while. If there are any filmmakers listening to this and they want to have better science in their movies, is there any kind of body of scientists that they can get in touch with who would be consultants for them? I'm sure it's not very hard to find really well-qualified people to consult on movies. And a lot of the movie makers do indeed. If if you look at the core, for instance, they had several uh, pretty respectable uh, planetary scientists and so on that consulted on the movie. Who they apparently ignored. Yeah, which which they ignore. (laughs) I I think typically what they do is they hire the consultants to provide little bits and pieces of vocabulary and little bits of fluff that give it the right kind of flavor, but they don't really listen to them. They don't get them involved in the movie-making process early enough so that, uh, yeah, if something's going completely in a goofy direction... By the time the uh, consultant says, uh, look, this isn't going to work out, 
uh, it's already, well, we've got a bunch of film in the can and it's too late. I uh, don't want to spend the money on it. Those are all issues. The other thing is that sometimes uh, I don't think the directors are courageous enough to try real science. It takes a certain amount of courage because they know that if they blow a whole bunch of stuff up with gasoline and make a bunch of big fireballs and kabangs and stuff like that, there's a certain uh, fairly large-sized audience that's going to get a kick out of that. So they could do the same scene in a realistic manner and make it just as exciting and probably a lot more emotional. But do they really want to risk it when they know that the other kind of scene is going to do the trick? Uh, one of the things that you poke fun at about the core is that there's this scientist who's just pursued by paparazzi and groupies and things. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah, that was uh, the contribution of the science consultants. <laughs> Yeah, it uh, must be. Um, I've gone to stuff like uh, the International Science Fair before and so on, and they'll have Nobel Prize-winning scientists there. And uh, the young people at uh, the International Science Fair will almost treat them almost like rock stars, only though it's a little, quite a bit more respectful, I must say. But uh, you could take one of those Nobel Prize-winning scientists and have them walk out in the middle of Manhattan in broad daylight, and I'll bet they could walk by a 1,000 people. They'd be lucky if one recognizes them, let alone asks for an autograph or, you know, swoons over them or what have you. Uh, so, yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, there is, a, I think, really an interaction between the science in the movies and the uh, the overall artistic quality. And I, I'm in hopes that Hollywood will start to go even a little bit more in that direction and make our movies even a little better. Uh, but until they do, I guess I'm still going to be writing about it. I'm still going to be uh, using them in my classroom uh, with my students. And I guess in a sense, that's a good thing, too. Well, Tom Rogers, author of Insultingly Stupid Movie Physics, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, thank you. I certainly enjoyed it. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Tom for joining us on the show. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about science in science fiction and, and hard SF and stuff like that. So, you know, both of my parents are scientists, and so most of the stuff that I read growing up was what I thought of as hard SF you know, Asimov and Heinlein and, and Larry Niven and stuff like that. And so I always kind of imagined that I would write hard SF when I grew up, you know, um, almost exclusively. And I still, uh, you know, I have this image of hard SF as being sort of core science fiction and being just something noble and important and just the idea of fiction that promotes science and that gets kids interested in science and that conveys scientific information I just think is so important. But... As the years have gone by, I've kind of developed a more and more conflicted relationship with, with hard SF and, and the role of science and science fiction. So I, th I thought it might be interesting to talk about that a little bit. One of the first sort of chinks in my, my armor of, you know, sort of strict adherence to the laws of science in fiction was uh, I read this, this great, great book called Redshift Rendezvous by John Stiff. And uh, it's such a cool book. I'd like to just, you know, lay out the premise a little bit. And unfortunately, you know, I'm on the West Coast, and this, my copy of this book is on the East Coast. And it's the kind of book where it would be really handy if I could refer to it, because <laughs> uh, it's fairly detailed, but I'll, I'll do my best. 
so basically in this book, we have a, a hyperspace starship and uh, there are 10 layers of hyperspace and each layer of hyperspace that you translate into, you know, distances are an order of magnitude smaller and the speed of light is an order of magnitude smaller. And so once you've translated into the 10th layer of hyperspace, you know, it doesn't take very long to fly between stars, but also the speed of light is only about one mile per hour aboard the ship. So, you know, you can actually walk faster than the speed of light. Um, there's a famous sort of physics book called uh, Mr. Tompkins that sort of tries to explain relativity by, by showing what the everyday world would be like if the speed of light was slow enough that you could actually observe, you know, that it affected everyday objects. And that's kind of what this, this science fiction novel does as well. But so it's just really, really cool. So, like, um, you know, it, it takes seconds for the light to reach you just across the room. So if you're looking at the far side of the room, you're actually seeing what happened 10 or 20 seconds ago. And, um, you know, so the conditions on each deck of the ship are, are completely different. It's like if you go down to the third deck, the, the rate of curvature of the hull matches the rate of curvature at which light falls off. So you just appear to be standing in this endless straight corridor. And if you stand there for 30 seconds or so, the light circles all the way around the, the ship and you see images of yourself. Uh, the ship, I should say, it's a, a series of concentric uh, spheres. And so you actually see like red shifting if people run really fast and, and stuff like that. And so because the speed of light is so slow, it actually uh, interferes with your body's functioning. So like the synapses in your brain are firing too slowly for you to stay conscious. So people on the ship have to wear life belts that generate a field that keeps all their body processes functioning at normal speed. Then the ship gets hijacked and everyone aboard is knocked out with gas. And our hero just happens to be kind of in an airlock when that, when that happens. And so he doesn't get rounded up with the rest of the crew. And then he's, he's going around and he's trying to, to fight some of these hijackers. And because he's used to the, envi the environment of the ship, it gives him a huge advantage. And he has this kind of device that'll turn off their life belts. And in this environment, fainting is devastatingly effective because, you know, you have your normal reaction time. But then when someone, you know, strikes at your face, what you're seeing is actually happened a couple seconds ago. So I read this book and I was like, wow, this is one of the most amazing books I've ever read. And then at the end, he has kind of a five or six page essay about the science in the book and, and you know, how... He figured out all the the layout of the ship really carefully, and there are equations and and stuff. And then he talks about some of the uh, you know some of the problems that he encountered. And so he's like, well, like these life belts, uh, they're basically magic, <laughs> you know. And so he just goes through all these things where it's all this sort of hand waving thing to get around these little problems that that crop up. By the end of that essay, I was just kind of like, well, geez, this is such a great book, and there's so much incredible science in it. But in the end, it doesn't work unless you just ignore some, some actual laws of science, right? And so that was kind of the first time where I was kind of like, well, geez, maybe, you know, if you're just going to ignore a couple laws of science to make a story work, why not ignore another mm -hmm. and another and another? Science can be such a buzzkill. <laughs> 
So uh, no, I was thinking when you were saying that uh, how fainting is uh, is really effective, and I was thinking like, oh, well, that's an important distinction. Which kind of fainting you you mean? Because like when you first said, I'm like fainting. How could fainting ever be good in <laughs> combat? You know, that doesn't make any sense. And I was like, oh, I see. You mean faking somebody out with a, you know, yeah, it's that very kind important. of faint. It's very important. We're we're talking about fainting. F e i n t i n g. So don't go into a fight against a hyperspace hijacker by f a i n t i n g. That's just not going to work very well. Spelling is important. Unless you're playing dead or something. Yeah. If our if our episode with Blake Charlton has taught you anything, it's that one letter wrong can really make a big difference. Um, like I mean, the book you were talking about, like I could see how that would have bothered you, but the thing is, I I actually really really respect that that everything else. That he was able to work out, like works out with with the math and the physics. But there's this one thing he couldn't get around, and I, I really respect that he was he was he still put in all the effort to make everything else make sense, even if he needed that one like sort of little magical thing in order to make everything work. I mean, I, I get your point though, though. Like you know, if you're gonna fudge on one detail, why don't you just fudge on everything? You know, I mean, I I, I can I get that point, but. You know, I think there's a lot of fun to be had with keeping the the, the rules in place as much as possible and only deviating when absolutely necessary. Well, I mean, speaking of stories that sort of combine really good science with some fudging, mm -hmm. with some sort of necessary fudging, I had some examples of that that I came up with. Um, and so one is Robert Heinlein's Time for the Stars. So in, in this one, you know, uh, Earth is sending out um, co colony ships uh, that travel near the speed of light. And uh, the problem is that it's how do you communicate with them, right? Because the radio signals you send are... It's, it's just completely impractical to send radio signals back and forth to a ship that's traveling away from you at near the speed of light. And so what they've realized is that telepathy is, is instantaneous. And so there are certain pairs of identical twins who are telepathic. And so in this story, they take one of these pairs of telepathic twins and one goes on the torch ship and one stays back on Earth and they're able to communicate with each other. Um, but since the ship is moving at near the speed of light, you get relativistic effects. So the twin who's on the ship stays basically the same age, while the twin who's back on Earth grows old and eventually dies. And that's all real, all real science, right? The, all the relativistic stuff. But obviously, the, telep the telepathy is completely made up. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know the story wouldn't work the way it is without the telepathy. Um, and, and then the other one I was going to mention is a, a book by Larry Niven. It's one of my favorite books. It's called The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton. And so this is set in a future where criminals kidnap people and disassemble them and then sell their organs on the black market. And he wrote this, you know, right after the first heart transplant was done successfully, looking at some of the implications of this. And so it's been kind of, I remember reading this as a kid when there was no such thing as organ <laughs> crime and, you know, people selling their organs and stuff. And it's, you know, it's, bec it's become, you know, a real phenomenon. You know, and in that case, that was a book, you know, a science fiction prediction that, that, that came true more or less, although thankfully not to the extent uh, as portrayed in the, in, the, in the story. I'll often mention this book as just an example of why I love science fiction to people who, who don't read science fiction when I'm just trying to give them some cool thing, you know, that they would be like, oh, that sounds interesting. So sort of like in Time for the Stars, there's like really good science with some sort of made up telepathic stuff. It's kind of the same case in The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton um, because the main character had been a um, asteroid miner, and an asteroid had sheared off one of his arms. In, in this future, it's just really easy. You know, you just get your arm transplanted, and it's no big deal. But before he could be taken to the hospital to get his transplant, he uh, was uh, convalescing for a period of time and developed, uh, you know, he could sort of imagine that his arm was still there, and so developed this telepathic arm mm. that he could use to uh, telekinetically 
pick up small objects. Oh, but in the meantime, they uh, they actually did give him an arm transplant, so he has two normal arms, and then this third telepathic arm that he can move independently of um, you know of his replacement arm. He has this trick that he does in bars to impress girls and stuff, where he'll smoke a cigarette using his telepathic arm. And so there's this scene in the in one of the stories where he's been captured by by one of these criminals, by one of the organ leggers. And so he's been captured by this criminal, and the criminal wants to see him do this trick. So he uh, he smokes this cigarette, and then he takes it, and he's you know he's tied up, mm-hmm. so he can't move his normal arms. But so he takes this cigarette and jams it into his eye, and the eyes are you know one of the more valuable parts of the body in this world. And the criminal, without thinking, uh, rushes forward to stop him from doing this. And so then he reaches into the guy's chest with his telepathic arm and squeezes the guy's heart till he's dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's such it's such a great scene. Uh, but again, you know. Unfortunately, there's no such thing as telepathic arms, mm-hmm. but it's, again, it's just this great combination of really good science with, you know, kind of mm-hmm. hand-waving stuff. Right. You know, um, you know, it's funny. I mean, although both those examples you cite sound really awesome, and actually my favorite novel is The Stars of My, the Stars of my Destination, Battle for Bester, which uh, doesn't use uh, telepathy, but it does use a mental power. In that novel, you can sort of uh, transport instantaneously from one sp- one place to another, um, you know, just by thinking about it. Uh, so it, they call it jaunting. And so it's like, you're, you know, you're using the power of your mind basically to, to do this thing. Although those are all very cool examples. Like I have to say like uh, mental powers is like one of my least favorite things in science fiction, basically because it just doesn't feel like science fiction at all to me. Like it just feels like a completely fantasy trope. Um, but so, you know, so re- I, I mentioned Redshift Rendezvous, you know, Amazing as it is was one of my first things that caused me to sort of question strict fidelity to science in, in science fiction. And then another was, you know, John Clute edited these two massive encyclopedias, uh, an encyclopedia of science fiction and an encyclopedia of fantasy. And I just spent a month or two just reading both of those cover to cover. So one of the worst days of my life hmm. was when I read the entry on Faster Than Light Travel mm-hmm. in the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Because, of course, I had known before then that... Einstein's theories uh, prohibit faster-than-light velocities, right? which I think most people know. But actually, the, the implications go further than that, is, is that it actually prohibits the um, transmitting of information faster than the speed of light because it violates causality. And actually, if you, if you go on Wikipedia and look at the faster-than-light um, entry, they have a pretty good discussion of this. But you know, basically, you can't have even if you even if there were some sort of um, hyperdrive or or something like that, or, or an Ansible, which is uh, you know an imaginary device to, to communicate instantaneously, it still doesn't work without some sort of violation of causality or some sort of time travel and and the related time paradoxes, which makes it much much more difficult to imagine that faster than light travel is ever going to happen. You know, so like as a kid when you're when you're nine years old, you know, reading Redshift Rendezvous. I would sort of imagine that, you know, maybe in 30 years, you know, 30 or 40 years, someone would invent hyperdrive and then we'd all be exploring the galaxy. And so that was really the first time I was just like, oh, I'm never going to live to see any sort of uh, meaningful space exploration in my lifetime. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I think light speed travel is is one of those one of those tropes that a lot of science fiction writers obviously are willing to forgive and, and, you know, readers as well. Um, But, you know, the thing is... um, it's kind of funny, like, I always kind of found that while it's necessary to tell a lot of science fiction stories, I feel like too many people sort of go to it without really thinking of how they might be able to tell that same story without using it. For instance, because, like, I mean, I don't know, just the idea of, like, a really claustrophobic sort of solar system, just, like, every inch of, uh, like, sort of 
possibly habitable space in the solar system taken up by, um, you know, space stations or, uh, you know, terraformed uh, moons and, and planets and, and whatnot. Uh, the idea of having that, like, sort of all really confined within our own solar system, I mean, that seems like uh, that hasn't been fully explored enough. When I was just sort of researching stuff for the show, I was reading the hard science fiction entry in Wikipedia, and they have a link to this page. They call it the, the Kepper scale mm -hmm. of how hard is the science mm -hmm. in, in science fiction. And so they uh, categorize different series according to things like, does it allow faster than light travel and, and mm -hmm. things like that? And so I was a little uh, <laughs> a little surprised to see that, say, Larry Niven's Known Space series, which I think of as being hard SF, Mm -hmm. It just just barely makes the grade. It's mm -hmm. it's just medium hard according to the according to this categorization. What was the uh, what was the highest rated thing? Yeah, so uh, at the very top here they have pre it's called present day tech, and they have techno thrillers and Alan Steele's Orbital Decay, mm. and then one down is ultra hard or diamond hard, and they have William Gibson, Neil Stevenson, and Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy. Mm. Oh, and Robert Forward. And then below that is very hard. They have Greg Egan, Lyndon Nagata, Greg Benford's Galactic Center series, Stephen Baxter's Manifold series. Uh, and then below that, plausibly hard, they have Stephen Baxter's Zeely Universe and Greg Barris' Forge of God series. And then Firm, <laughs> they have Asimov's Foundation series and uh, Werner Vinge's Fire Upon the Deep and To Deepness in the Sky. And at Medium, which is the, the, the last rank before you get to soft sci-fi. They have Niven's Known Space, uh, Heinlein, Starship Troopers, Banks's Culture Novels, David Brin's Uplift series, and Frank Herbert's Dune. I can't, I can't help but think of cheese, uh, this rating scale, you know, like... Uh... <laughs> and so, you know, people should, uh, you know, go to the website and look at it. You can see what they actually, what, what defines the different, uh, different categories. Yeah, so when you mentioned uh, how you were reading the encyclopedias and, uh, and, and it was one of the worst days of your life when you learned that faster than light travel was impossible, um, I'd have to say, like, if, if anyone ever discovered that, like, powered armor uh, would be completely impossible, that would be, like, sort of one of the worst days of my life, too. Just because, like, I just, like, love powered armor stories so much and uh, just, like, the idea of it is so cool. Um, I mean, when we talked to uh, P.W. Singer in Episode 3, um, that kind of was very encouraging to me because, I mean, he was sort of talking about uh, that kind of thing a little bit. And, uh, the, you know, the idea that, that, you know, this kind of thing is actually being developed is, just seems so cool to me. On the subject of hard SF, I also wanted to mention Larry Niven's Ring World, which is kind of one of the most interesting uh, environments uh, mm -hmm. someone's dreamed up in, in science fiction. So the idea here is, well, you should say, first of all, you know, that um, a real interstellar civilization would, would probably have just vast, vast energy needs. And so, you know, like all the energy on planet Earth... Um, comes ultimately from the sun and that's just the tiniest fraction of light that the sun emits just you know whatever hits the earth mm -hmm. you know all the life on earth uh, is, is built on that energy source and so so the idea is that super advanced civilizations wouldn't want any of the energy of their home star just flying off into space so they would build shells sort of spheres completely enclosing their home home star this was an idea that was first elaborated by a physicist named Freeman Dyson. And so these, these spheres, these hypothetical spheres are known as Dyson spheres. And so Larry Niven kind of thought about that. And he decided that maybe building a sphere, that would be just, uh, that might be a little hard. <laughs> you know, that might just be kind of a big project to undertake. So it would actually, uh, sort of a, a first step would be to build a ring. And so uh, in ring world, it's sort of a, a ring that's built 
at the distance of one astronomical unit. So it's as far from the sun as Earth is, but fills the entire orbit and is, you know, millions of times, has millions of times the, the surface area uh, of Earth and so has kind of soil and oceans and, and trees and stuff all built on the inside of the ring facing the sun. And then there are sort of giant plates that rotate uh, to produce day and night cycles, you know, sort of, sort of blocking out the sun. And so, so he wrote this novel using this idea called Ring World. And it's sort of a famous incident in the annals of, of hard SF that a, a, a number of MIT students showed up at the 1971 World Con and stood in the hallways chanting, the ring world is unstable, the ring world is unstable. You know, he had worked it all out very, very carefully, but he hadn't taken into account that it's not in an inertial orbit, so there's nothing really holding the ring to that orbit, so that it seems inevitable that it would shift and fall into the sun. And so, so he actually wrote a, a sequel. He hadn't been planning to write a sequel, but he wrote a sequel called The Ringworld Engineers that sort of took that into account. Yeah, uh, little known fact, uh, um, he actually stole the idea from Halo. <laughs> oh, may, actually, maybe that might be the other way around. Well, actually, they, they, um, I think there are some references in Halo. It's like the Niven sector or something. Mm. And apparently they, they offered, offered him to write the first Halo novel. Oh, really? Because they're, they're big fans, and he, you know, he wasn't interested. But <laughs> they make no secret of the fact that <laughs> they took that from him. Right. Alan Steele, actually, who you mentioned earlier, uh, he has a story in my anthology, Federations, um, uh, called The Other Side of Jordan, which uh, actually deals with a similar construct, uh, which he calls a... He calls a hex, um, and he actually has a novel coming out, uh, or that he's working on anyway, uh, that, that will be called Hex that actually deals with it in a more, uh, you know, more straight-on uh, fashion. Yeah, there's something very similar in Ian M. Banks's Culture series uh, mm -hmm. that, that was on that list I, I read earlier, but he calls them orbitals, and they're much smaller, but they're rings, and so they spin to, to produce gravity, and people live on, on, on the insides of them. Um, you know, he has this one story where someone actually shoots down a spaceship from Earth or from not from Earth, but uh, from from planet side. And I'm like, that is like such so just a cool concept. Like, I can't even explain it. And uh, I mean, I don't know if it's possible at all, but I mean, that's like so cool. Yeah, no, I mean, Ian M. Banks's culture series is one of my favorite book series. You know, the first one is Consider Phlebas and it's OK. But the, the next two are, are just fantastic um, player of games and use of weapons. And it's it's set in this uh, inter interstellar civilization called the Culture, that are very enlightened, and every once in a while they run up against some less enlightened interstellar civilization, and they have to, you know, they don't like to fight uh, the Culture, and so they have these kind of secret agents uh, called special circumstances, and they'll send these people into into less developed cultures and you know cause them to collapse uh, from the inside. Um, if you want to read the story I was talking about, you should also pick up his collection, uh, State of the Art. Um, I'd rather not specify which story it was in, just because it's like, it's like a little bit of a spoiler to tell you which one. But if you just pick up that collection, um, you know, and you read them all, then uh, you know you should be good. Um, another sort of hard SF writer I wanted to mention, who's uh, you know newer, is uh, Alistair Reynolds, mm -hmm. and um, you know he has a, a series of books that begin with Revelation Space. Uh, actually, there's a moment at the beginning of Revelation Space that's just one of my favorite moments in, in science fiction is that there's a captain of a starship, and she has a mutinous crew member who tries to murder her by pushing her down an elevator shaft, uh, except it takes her a long time to fall down this elevator shaft. So while she's falling, she's able to reprogram the ship to fire its thrusters <laughs> to, to match her velocity. So by the time she hits the bottom of the elevator shaft, you know she's not falling that fast relative to it and, and isn't harmed. I just I just read a collection by him. It was called Zima Blue, 
and that was I really liked that. It was really good. And uh, there was a, a story in, in there that I just loved. And I guess he wrote it for, you know, like a convention program book. Mm-hmm. So probably not that many people would have read it um, before it appeared in this collection. But it was it, there, there, there's this guy and he's one of the he's the last survivor. He's, he's like on, on, on the moon or on Mars and he's the last survivor from humanity. And he, he doesn't really have anything to do. And so he decides he's going to learn all the science that he never really paid attention to in science class. And after he's been doing this for a couple of years, some um, benevolent aliens show up and offer to help him. And so he eventually undertakes kind of this odyssey to understand all the science that it's possible to know and go farther than any sentient being has ever gone before. And this obviously requires, you know, a human brain just isn't up, up to the task. So he has to constantly be uh, augmenting his brain so that he can understand deeper and deeper levels of, of math and science. And, you know, eventually he's just like a mind kind of a neural network the size of Jupiter and then bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually they tell him, you know, it's really getting risky to go on beyond this because eventually your brain, in effect, gets so big that you're at risk of it collapsing into a black hole and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Zima Blue is a great collection, and uh, he's actually got uh, another one out already called Diamond Dogs, and then um, he has a new one coming out called Deep Navigation from uh, Nesva Press. You know, we've been talking about at a fairly high level of how much science, uh, you know, should matter. But certainly in, in, you know, in in fiction, but certainly when it comes to movies, there's just so much work (laughs) that they could, you know, that they need to do before it would even get to the point where I would even consider like, okay, guys, maybe you've gone too far, you know, with the science here. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of it is that, you know, if, if people doing the movies knew a little more science, you know, not only would it be more accurate, but it would suggest cool possibilities you know like when he was talking about how the incredible hulk when he jumps it should just be like shattering the sidewalks under him when Mm -hmm. he takes off i thought that was really cool and it's the kind of thing like if they just knew they could put that in easily enough it wouldn't spoil the story or anything and it would just be an extra fun detail they could add right you know when they when he said that i actually thought about that and i I was thinking that i've actually seen the incredible hulk do that somewhere like i don't know if it was in comic books or um I mean, it must have been comic books because I haven't actually. I never really watched the the television show, and uh, uh, I don't remember it from the from the recent movies. I mean the the Ang Lee movie, which was unwatchable, so it may have happened in that, but I I wouldn't have seen it. But um, it, it, I don't remember it happening in the in the more recent one with uh, Ed Norton. But uh, I, I'm I'm pretty certain that I have actually seen the Hulk cause that sort of trauma <laughs> before, but uh, I, I couldn't swear to it. Um, or like you know how um, he, he was talking about a little bit how dog fights in outer space movies always just kind of look like world war ii dog fights and how there's so much stuff in a real outer space fight that would be so cool to see mm-hmm. it would be something new you know yeah yeah um like in Battlestar galactica the the new series they did a little bit of that where you know sometimes you'll see a ship um just spin and play you know it'll be flying in one direction and it'll just spin so that it's facing the other direction and it keeps mm-hmm. you know the inertia makes it keep going the way it had been and it'll fire behind it and stuff stuff like that is really cool to see um but they could go so much farther with that it's like why do these ships have wings at all mm-hmm. you know shouldn't you just have a ship that's shouldn't, shouldn't the the pilot be at the center and it's just a big armored sphere and it just has guns and jets in every direction yeah well i mean like that well i mean i think uh sometimes it's because they want the ships to be also be able to enter the atmosphere of a planet but uh yeah i mean for a for a purely uh space going vessel then yeah certainly uh there's a lot of uh a lot of cool new things that certainly could be done that uh no one's really taken advantage of much you know and so tom was talking about the new star trek movie 
uh, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's been a lot of hating on the red hmm. matter. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like totally with Tom on, uh, on his reaction to the movie in that I love what they did with the characters and everything, but God, the science. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people have said, oh well, Star Trek has never been really, you know, too accurate with the science, but I mean, they usually cover it better than that. It seems like they have a big problem with with something like Star Trek, where it's you know a show from the '60s, and they're kind of stuck with a lot of the technology. Or, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that was established on the show that they can't change. But the now seems, you know, that at least readers are, are, are a lot more sophisticated. Um, so actually the thing that bugged me the most watching that movie was, why do humans and Vulcans look almost identical? And how can they, ha- how can they have kids together? Um, which I guess, I mean, they've, they've done some stuff in the show to try to justify that a little bit. But I, I just, I'm just not buying it. Uh, oh, no, I mean, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me at all, how, how they could crossbreed. And when you think about it, I mean, you know, there's so many stories about sexy aliens. Mm -hmm. And sadly, I think the possibility of us (laughs) meeting any sexy aliens are are really, really remote. I mean, when you think about it, like uh, like a chimpanzee is like, isn't it it like something like Mm 99.5% genetically identical to a Mm -hmm. human being? And so it's it's very unlikely that a a random alien you meet is going to (laughs) be, you know, closer to us than a chimpanzee for sure. Right. Well, I mean, you know, so there's, it's unlikely you'll find a sexy alien unless you already find chimpanzees sexy, in which case, maybe. Um, and if you do, well, that's cool. I mean, I won't judge you, but. <laughs> Another thing about the Star Trek universe that just seems incongruous is, is that they have faster than light travel, but they don't have genetic engineering mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. And uh, Well, that's, that's sort of... Uh, I think it was like sort of banned or something because of uh, like that's what uh, Khan Nooni and Soong uh, that's where he comes from like right I mean it's like uh, his his whole group was exiled to that planet um, like in, in you know there's a there's a character called Khan um, you know in which the movie Wrath of Khan is, is named for and and you know the, they're they're sort of a race of genetically engineered uh, people who were exiled there and, uh, and that's why he has this wrath because they were you know because they were exiled uh, to this planet uh, but yeah I mean I think I think they sort of touch on genetic engineering in the series but i think it's like the reason why it doesn't exist is because like you know it was outlawed or whatever which actually seems like it uh is is plausible uh, given how science in that vein has sort of been uh halted by laws and stuff uh you know in the present day like in terms of yeah but centuries in the the future i mean it just seems inevitable to me that any you know i mean i think this is sort of a a child a real challenge for for science fiction writers is that a hundred years or two hundred years or three hundred years in the future, it seems that human beings are going to be so changed mm-hmm. by probably genetic engineering and by technology that present day humans will have a hard time relating to them i mean it's it's entirely plausible that human beings three hundred years in the future will look like aliens and mm-hmm. be a thousand times smarter than us and you know have complete control over their emotions and stuff like that, and this really just presents a huge challenge to all our traditional ideas of, of character and story and, and, and things like that. I mean, that's kind of the whole idea of the singularity, right? If people don't know what we're talking about, there's this idea known as the technological singularity that was popularized in science fiction by, by Werner Vinge. And the idea basically is that technological progress, if you chart it on a graph, has been a ever sharply increasing curve. And at some points, you know, probably it seems in the next hundred years or, or so, in the next few centuries anyway, that that curve is going to reach a straight upward line, 
where technology is just advancing by leaps and bounds day by day and that we're going to have you know ai machines that are vastly smarter than people and genetically engineered people that are smarter than than people and that it's just really impossible for us to competently project what's going to happen beyond that point that it's it's sort of a kind of a curtain that we can't look past because we're just not smart enough to imagine what vastly more intelligent beings than ourselves might do it's sort of like like one of our distant anthropoid ancestors trying to imagine what homo sapiens might do centuries into the future mm -hmm. you know they just don't have the cognitive capacity to to visualize it at all and that's an, again a real challenge for for science fiction writers today but that's maybe beyond the scope of our uh, of our current episode it's also you know not only is it beyond the scope of uh, our understanding it's also beyond the scope of our episode hmm. and that was our show thanks everyone for joining us if you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today we'd love to hear from you just go to tor.com and click on podcasts and then geeks guide to the galaxy episode 10 and post a comment there and be sure to join us next week when we'll interview alexander philippe director of the new documentary the people versus george lucas which explores the love-hate relationship that fans have for the legendary director who created star wars See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspin 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.